Recovery Elevator, episode 265. So I kind of felt like not only am I going to lose this crutch that I have, but I feel like I'm going to lose all these friendships that I have, which is hard whenever you already feel like you're losing your identity. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator Podcast. My name is Paul Churchill. Thank you so much for joining us. On today's podcast, we've got Janine. She took her last drink on November 11th, 2019. She's from Pensacola, Florida, and she's 32 years old. In her interview, she talks about how she tried everything to control her drinking. And she also mentions how her drinking took off when she started her career. It's a great interview. You guys are going to love it. I want to give a shout out to my cousin, Kirk, who just hit two years alcohol free. Good job, my man. I cannot wait to see you at Thanksgiving dinner this year. Good job, Kirk. One more sobriety plug. A guy named Top in Cafe Ari Go. Uh, his unofficial name is Mayor Top. Eh, we're going to make that his official name. This guy is the mayor of one of the groups. He just hit one year of sobriety. This was on February 17th, and this date will officially be Tom Day in Cafe Arigo from here on out. But something special happened. So Tom joined the group, and he fully embraced the being of service component. In fact, I occasionally make graphics for people when they hit milestones of 30 days, 2 months, 90 days, 6 months, a year, and other people do as well. But then there's this guy, Tom, who shows up. And I think it was when Cafe Arigo launched on January 1st, 2019. He started making graphics for everyone. This guy, Tom, seems to have access to a sobriety Rolodex database that I don't even have access to. And he fully has embraced the idea of getting out of sight of himself, putting others first every day for this last year. I saw him create one to two to three graphics a day. Some of them would be for milestones that aren't even really milestones. Like, hey, Tim, nice job on hitting 73 days. I'm like, Tom, dude, I can't even keep up with you. So Tom hit one year alcohol-free this last February 17th. And oh my goodness, I saw Go, and he also helped me launch Cafe Ari Up. I saw both of these groups just explode with encouragement for Tom. Some guy even wrote a live song. There were live videos. There were videos, tons of posts. It made my heart swell. And I hope, Tom, you were able to sit with that. And this is me recognizing you on the podcast as such a freaking rock star because it takes people like you to make these groups what they are. In fact, we had a cancellation one time that said, Cafe Ari was great, but I think I'll miss Tom more. <laughs> so, Tom, you the man, and I hope you consider the interview request. I actually asked Tom to be on the podcast. So, Tom, if you're listening to this, let's get you on, buddy. Okay, guys, this June 11th, the 13th, Recovery Elevator will be live in Denver, Colorado, in the event titled Dancing with the Mind. You'll learn how to create your future, happy, wholesome, authentic self that no longer needs alcohol, and you'll draw this new life to you like a magnet in the present moment. You'll build lifelong in-person connections with others who no longer drink. This event, like all Recovery Elevator events, is going to be fun. Go to recoveryelevator.com for more information and to register. Okay, let's get started. In this episode, I want to chat with you about the comfort zone, why you have to get outside of it, why it's so important, and how it's possible to get too far outside your comfort zone. There is some strategy to this madness. So you guys are going to like this episode, and it should come as a comfort in an episode about getting outside your comfort zone. So let's see if I can pull this off. If you've heard episode, I think it was zero, one, or 2, I conduct an exercise, and I'll do it again for you right now. So pull out a piece of paper and draw a dot in the middle of that piece of paper, and then draw a circle around that dot. Next up, put a dot outside of that circle. Now label the dot inside the circle, your current life. Now label the dot outside that circle, your future life that no longer needs alcohol, a life that doesn't need alcohol, a life that's not avoiding alcohol, but a life that's leading such a kick-ass life, it no longer needs alcohol. It no longer even thinks about alcohol. 
Yes, a life where you'd rather watch a sunset than drink a bottle of wine. And the thought of pairing the two is absolutely disgusting. I know that was a lot to write, but you get the point. So that comfort zone exercise is powerful. And if you haven't done that, I consider doing it right now. Maybe even tape this exercise up on your corkboard or somewhere where you're going to see it every single day. Look at the dot inside the comfort zone. That's you where you're at right now. Look at the dot outside and recognize you need to push the threshold. You need to get outside of that circle. And I'd bet the farm you hear me say, get outside of your comfort zone on at least every other episode since episode zero, one or two. In fact, that would be a fun drinking game if we took a drink every time I said comfort zone on this podcast and a drinking game with Waterloo, everybody. So calm down. Oh yeah. And Waterloo is the official soda water sponsor for our Denver event this June 11th to the 13th. So it's imperative we step outside of our comfort zone when ditching the booze because that's precisely where your alcohol-free life exists. Let's first take a look at the definition of comfort zone, which is a behavioral space where your activities and behaviors fit in a routine and pattern. Keywords here are your behaviors fit a routine and pattern. We've got behaviors, routine, and pattern. Your actions, your behaviors, will consistently fit in a routine, a pattern, a known sequence. This comfort zone is the known. Even though you've racked your brain countless times on ways to quit drinking, you're only able to access 5% of the conscious mind that is always going up against 95% of the unconscious mind, which is the routines, the patterns, and the unconscious programs. These programs do things that you're not even thinking about doing. They just happen. That's sometimes you feel like the drink was in your hand. You started drinking, you were drunk, and you go, what in the hell just happened? Well, I can tell you what happened. You were inside your comfort zone. So it's important we step outside of this zone, this blanket of comfort for the following reasons. Your body will always tell you to stay in the familiar known, which is always anchored in the past. And your past most likely includes hangovers, shame, guilt, resentments, and more of that similar blah. Another reason is you cannot heal in the same environment where a nightly bottle of wine became the norm. Or another way to say it is, you can't heal with the same level of consciousness that you became sick with. It's impossible. A third way is you need to become a different person, as in you can't go there as a sickness, as an alcoholic, with an addiction, or as the body. Another reason, once we step outside the norm, we disrupt how nerves and neurons communicate. And nerve cells that no longer fire together, no longer wire together we begin to dissolve or transmute the addiction. This can actually take place and it happens all the time. Your addiction can simply dissolve. Another reason is your real life is out there waiting for you. In fact, I'm gonna go a little further and say that life already exists in the quantum field. Your real life exists beyond the bubble of your own personal thoughts, feelings, and beliefs. Your real life is a sum total of all your experiences, not just the ones you're comfortable with. So your current life is a sum total of all your experiences, not just the ones you're comfortable with. And stepping into this real life that I talk about, this is the definition of what recovery is in my book, Alcohol is Shit. You're recovering your real life or the person you were always meant to be. And again, this real life, the true authentic you, it doesn't exist in the comfort zone. And listeners, studies show that stepping outside of your comfort zone even once makes it easier and more likely that you'll do it again. Just like you have a pectoral muscle, you have a comfort zone muscle. It gets stronger. And once you've stepped over that line, that circle, which is outside your comfort zone, I know your hands over your eyes and you prove yourself, oh my gosh, I just did this. It gets easier every single time after that. So this list of why it's important to get outside of your bubble could go on forever, but I think that suffices. So if you've been around the block or in recovery for a hot minute, especially in the rooms of AA, you've most likely heard the phrase, you don't have to change much, you just have to change everything. So that didn't sit well with me the first time I heard it. And I was like, whoa there, Mr. 12-step, pump the brakes. But now, and I don't know how to break this to you guys, it's true. But this should also be exciting. The true you, your authentic self, the Mindy that gives zero fucks about what other people think is there. 
waiting for you. As in, you have to become this person. She exists. He exists. So yes, tremendous change needs to occur, but not all at once. It's important you implement a strategy with this and go slow. I got the idea for this episode when I was listening to the audiobook In Love with the World by Yonge Mingyur Rinpoche, which I highly recommend. And in the book, he talks about how he's going to begin a three-year walking retreat. He's not even going to tell anybody. He just walks outside of his temple with his comfort, and he's going to be living on the street with no money, no possessions, sleep on the ground, leave his traditional clothing, and add fuel to the fire, or purposely step outside of his comfort zone. Instead of living in the comfort of his monastery, he's going to have no money, no possessions, or no food. And instead of leaving the comfort zone of his monastery instantly with no money, no possessions, no food all at once, he talks about how he eases into this new life of his walking retreat. And even this was too much. In fact, he adds too much fuel to his fire or he steps too far outside of his comfort zone and he nearly dies within the first two weeks. In fact, he wakes up in the hospital week two of his walking retreat. And as far as I know, this is a true story. And he talks about how he went way too far outside of his comfort zone too quickly. So this is where the window of tolerance comes in. We want to push the envelope of this comfort zone, but go slow, as in scratch the surface of the fight or flight emotional state and then come back into safety. It won't do your body, your mind, and mental health any good if you jump into a state of fight or flight for a continued period of time. How will you know if you've breached this window of tolerance? The body will always let you know. Sit with your body and see if your heart rate is faster than normal. Check anxiety levels. Are thoughts racing? Temporary anxiety is just fine. But if this anxiety lasts more than a couple days, three, four, five days, a week, two, pump the brakes, bring it back in, find ways to calm down because that state with the cortisol, the stress on the adrenal glands, that actually will do more harm than good. On the Recovery Elevator Asia Adventure Trip, we had a rock star named Jen, and she pushed herself so much that she found herself too far outside her comfort zone. I said, Jen, wow, great job. You are smashing it, but let's rein it back in a bit because when you're so far out of the comfort zone, the body knows it's not time to heal, to create, to digest food, to make connections or produce restorative chemicals in the body, and all systems in the body become taxed and overburdened. So in regards to ditching the booze, here are some strategies I recommend with the comfort zone. Instead of quitting forever, aim for one day, or 50% of the days this month. You can stack days instead of full abstinence. I know when I first started this journey, the thought of quitting forever put me way outside of my comfort zone, and it wasn't reasonable for me. When it comes to burning the ships, I'm a huge advocate for this if you haven't been able to tell. But look, go at your own pace because this has to be done, but open up to others however you feel comfortable doing. Posting on Facebook that you're deciding to quit drinking and the reasons why, calling a reverse intervention with your family and coworkers on day one, that might be a little too much to start off with. Here's a big one. Tell yourself that getting outside your comfort zone won't be as bad as the mind has told you. Most likely, the mind has thought of all 712 worst case scenarios, and I can guarantee you that 712 of them won't happen. You may have heard the 90 meetings in 90 days, but in reality, you might be a one meeting every seven day person, then two meetings every seven days, then three. You get the point. So you want to start at a pace that is sustainable. This is why most diets fail. They are too big of shocks to the system to start. Oh, here's a cool one. Get outside of your comfort zone while outside. Journal, listen to podcasts, read your favorite quit lit books under a tree or at a park. And if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go as a team. No one, including myself, is asking you to step outside your comfort zone alone. Let people know where you're mentally, spiritually, and physically going. They'll be there to catch you and offer advice. I once told my counselor a plan of mine, and she was like, okay, Paul, let's pump the brakes a bit. That plan would have been way too much for me. So on this journey, keep pushing the boundary of this comfort zone, the window of tolerance, 
And keep in mind, there's going to be a couple big ones that have to be done. Like the day you quit drinking. That's a big, hey Tammy, we're stepping outside of our comfort zone day. Or the day you tell the person closest to you in life your decision to become alcohol free. There's going to be some big ones. Starting this podcast was a big one for me. And I've got another big one coming soon. I quit drinking on September 7th, 2014. I didn't start the podcast the next day. I eased into the idea until the first episode came out on February 25th, 2015. In fact, I took a 6,000 mile road trip in November that year just to wrap my head around the idea. My first retreat that I put on had eight people. I wrote several episodes and blog posts before I wrote a book. I was outside of my comfort zone, but only a few times was I way outside my comfort zone, and only once was I too far outside my comfort zone, and that was when I uploaded the first podcast iTunes. I almost deleted that episode a dozen times. Same thing happened with the book. Twice, I hit the command A or select all feature, and my finger hovered over the delete key, and this was towards the end of the book writing process. I almost scrapped the whole project. And I'm so glad I didn't. And one more piece of advice when stepping outside your comfort zone. I once heard when you're on an important journey and you encounter a wall, throw your pack over first as you'll be sure to follow. And guys, I think we all know that quitting drinking is a damn important journey. And so the main side effect of all this stepping outside of your comfort zone stuff isn't an alcohol-free life. It's you'll begin to fall in love with yourself and this new person will no longer need alcohol. You'll begin to realize that you can do this, you can do anything, and that strength, the power, the courage needed, it's not outside of you. It's been inside you all along, and it's always gonna be there. Okay, I hope you've enjoyed this podcast episode. I enjoyed putting it together. Gosh, this one got a little long as well. And after we hear from Janine, I'm gonna share a couple of my own thoughts on love and why it is so powerful. And before we hear from Janine, let's hear from my favorite resource, Cafe RE. The three most important lessons I've learned while quitting drinking are, we can't do this alone, we need accountability, and a supportive community is key. In the private unsearchable Facebook groups, Cafe RE, you're going to get all three and much more. What does private mean? Well, these groups are unsearchable on Facebook. Who's in the group and what is said can only be seen by members. You get 24-7 access to a group full of others whose priority it is to ditch the booze. These groups are capped at under 350 members to ensure a quality connection. In Cafe RE, you'll find that quitting drinking doesn't have to suck. In fact, it can be a lot of fun. For $19 a month, you too can join the conversation, be paired with an accountability partner, attend educational online webinars, online meetups, attend in-person meetups, participate in book club, movie club, and much more. Oh yeah, you'll also get discounts to retreats and sober travel trips. Go to recoveryelevator.com and use the promo code OPPORTUNITY to waive the setup fee. I hope to see you there. Janine, how are you? Great. How are you, Paul? Janine, I'm doing fantastic. Thanks for asking. How are you feeling about this interview? Uh, a little nervous. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. But That's I'm a, excited. Yeah. A little nervous. Common response. I think if I had to tally there, we're at 92% is what I would estimate. <laughs> People say, I'm like, are you ready? Every time I write before I hit the record button, I go, are you ready? They're like, hold on. I'm a little nervous, a little nervous. So common <laughs> response. Don't worry about that. It's going to be fun. It's going to be <laughs> casual. It's your story. It's tough to mess that up. And listeners, be careful if you send me an email because she said, Hey, <laughs> I'm wondering if you have done an episode covering mommy and wine culture because it's a real thing. You have real in all capital letters and no doubt it is a real thing. And I did cover this topic probably a hundred episodes ago, but it's not clear in the title. In fact, I went back and said, if I were to title this correctly, it'd be women and alcohol didn't title it that way, but you're right. There's a lot of data in here and it, it's, it's difficult for women to quit drinking. There's a subset of culture. That's right. The yoga, the, the mommy wine culture, the book club, the, uh, the, the, the bonding. And I want to chat with you about that. So I said, be, be careful. If you send me an email, I might send you a line back that says, Hey, let's do an interview. So that's exactly what happened with Janine. I'm excited to hear your story and let's get right into this. Janine, when was your last drink? My last drink was November 11th, 2019. November 11th, 2019. How's it feel? I actually feel great. 
I am, I feel like I'm starting to come kind of out of this fog. My anxiety, I feel like has completely, well, almost completely diminished. And I, I kind of had some episodes with depression. So that has, has gotten 10 times better. So I'm feeling really great. You know, let's cover the anxiety thing real quick before we get into your background and a little bit more about yourself. What was it like before you quit drinking with the anxiety? I would have, you know, whenever you wake up hungover, just, I was already an anxious person, but the hangovers and all of that, I feel like intensified my anxiety times a hundred. And I also, after I had my daughter, was diagnosed with postpartum depression and I feel like I obviously used alcohol to kind of try to cope with that. And I, I feel like the alcohol just was like throwing gasoline on the postpartum depression and the symptoms that came with it. Um, my anxiety was just out of control. I mean, I just woke up anxious. I was anxious all day. It, it just wasn't a good mix. So yeah, the anxiety was, was pretty bad. Sure. There's a term called anxiety, and yes. there's this pattern that we can fall into, which was, which was scary. It was terrifying. This hamster wheel of anxiety where we know the brain knows that the best way, well, we know and it's not the best way, but the unconscious knows the best, quickest, most effective way to squelch this anxiety is with alcohol. However, the alcohol causes the anxiety. So there's a circular pattern that eventually one day we're gonna have to put our heels in the sand and depart from the alcohol. But it's difficult because the thinking mind, which is a predictability machine, that's how it functions best. It knows that alcohol will temporarily, temporarily solve that problem. And when we are in a state of fight or flight, which anxiety usually kicks us in the cortisol, those adrenal glands start functioning and firing and alcohol usually shows up, almost always shows up as the best option. I noticed the same thing with alcohol and anxiety. In fact, anxiety is a big reason why I hit my tipping point and jumped off because it got so bad. So before we get any further with your background, give listeners a little information about yourself, maybe where you're from, what you do for a living, your age, do you have a family and what do you like to do for fun? All right. Well, I am from Pensacola, Florida. I'm 32 years old. I have a wonderful husband. We will celebrate our fourth year anniversary next month, actually. And we have a beautiful nine-month-old daughter. I'm currently staying home, but prior to that, I taught kindergarten for nine years. And for fun, we're very fortunate to live like 30 minutes away from some gorgeous beaches. So I love going to the beach with my family, and when I'm not doing that, I love spending time. We have a we have a beagle basset hound mix dog. Um, he was our first baby, <laughs> so I really enjoy taking him on walks. We do that almost every day, and we love taking him to the dog park. But you know, from for day to day, like I just really enjoy watching my daughter learn new things and growing and experiencing new things. And Janine, give listeners some background about your drinking. When did you start? When did you first recognize it was a problem? Did you ever attempt to moderate, put rules into place? Were there some rock bottom moments? And I want to I want to focus on the three months away from alcohol. So let's not take too long with your story, but please get us up to date and include ages. I understand you're 32 right now. Let us know chronologically your ages and years and things like that. I'm excited to hear it, Janine. Well, I took my first drink when I was 17 years old, and I immediately loved the, you know, effect that I felt from it. It, I was always a very shy, introverted person, so it just gave me that, you know, I guess liquid courage is what it felt like at the time. And then I went on to college, and truthfully, I don't know that I really drank any more than any other college person. You know, I. I went to parties and whatnot, but it was very important to me to graduate from college. So I've always tried to put that first. So after I graduated, I went on to begin my teaching career. And that that's whenever I kind of feel like my drinking really took off because teaching is a very stressful job. And, you know, I, I didn't really know how to cope with stress. So I used alcohol. So I really began drinking a lot and it just kind of gradually over the years, you know, I just drank more and more and more. And then whenever I met my husband, 
we met about six years ago and I just told myself like, okay, like I knew what we had was serious and I saw a future with him and I'm like, you know, I can't keep drinking like this forever. Like, and this was like kind of a moment of clarity, I guess, where I was like, you know, you've got to get this drinking under control. If you want to be a wife and a mother, like, you know, you need to slow down. Real quick, was it a definitive moment or was it more like you were able to zoom out? I think you said a moment of clarity. This is six years ago. So at age 20, at age 26, you recognized, wait a second, this is something that I have to rein in. It is not taking me down a pathway that I would like to continue down. And and it went for five and a half or, or six years more. Was a definitive moment there? Or what happened for you to get that moment of clarity? There wasn't really a definitive moment. I just kind of like took a step back and looked at my life. And I mean, to be honest, you know, as a drinker, we tend to surround ourselves with people that <laughs> drink as much as us or more. So we don't feel so bad about how much we're drinking. I mean, they were great people and I love them. But the people I was hanging out with at the time, like I could see like they were just stuck in that moment. And I didn't want to be there. You know, I, I wanted... I had goals and I wanted to do things. I wanted a, a family. And so, yeah, I just, I knew that for me to have what I wanted, I felt like I needed to change. And that's whenever I really started trying to control my drinking. Talk to us you a know, little bit I, about the methods you use to control your drinking. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Here we go. I love these. <laughs> I feel like I've tried almost everything. You know, I would try Uh, The first one, the obvious one, I think that most people do is I switch from liquor to wine or beer. And the funny thing about whenever I tried to control my drinking is that I would usually, I called them games. I would play games with my drinking and I would typically, typically win. But, you know, what I didn't realize is that, no, I wasn't drinking vodka, but I was drinking like two Magnum bottles of wine. (laughs) So that was the first one. And then I was like, well, you know, I'm drinking the wine, but I'm still getting blackout drunk. So maybe I need to drink a glass of water after every glass of wine, you know, and I would do that for maybe like the first two glasses and then just say, oh, forget it. Another one was, you know, I'm not going to drink during the week. Um, And sometimes I would do okay with that. And then sometimes I wouldn't. But even if I did, you know, stick to that rule, Um, On the weekends, I was still, you know, from the moment I got off work until the moment I went back to work on Monday, I was still getting blackout drunk the entire weekend. So, Janine, was there a moment when in the back of your mind, you're like, I've tried X, Y, Z, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, these rules to control. None of them have worked. Was there a time when almost fear came in and you said, wait a second, I've tried all these. These aren't working. This might be a runaway car that I'm not able to to rein back in. Because I remember when I had that moment, it was it was terrifying. Yes, that's exactly what happened, actually. And it wasn't that long ago. It was about four months ago. You know, I had this weird perception in my mind that when I became a mother, there was just going to be this magical off switch that I wouldn't want to drink anymore because after all, you're going to be getting up with the baby. You're going to be so exhausted. You know, you're going to have all these responsibilities like and I even had several of my friends tell me like you're going to be too tired to want to drink. So I just didn't really worry about it. I thought I'm going to have the baby and it's all going to be okay. And that didn't happen. If anything, I feel like at one point, like my drinking was the worst that it had ever been. Now, earlier you mentioned stress and you said drinking took off when you started your teaching career. And then you mentioned now you have a baby and I can only imagine the amount of stress (laughs) when you, you, you bring another life into your life. And can you see how the stress has affected your drinking? Oh yes, definitely. And as I mentioned, I, struggled with postpartum depression. And so, you know, I kind of just used it as a coping mechanism and it just intensified everything. And I had this moment, I told my husband, um, this was the last effort to control my drinking, but I told my husband, I said, you know, (laughs) I said, I can be a social drinker. You know, maybe we just don't need to keep alcohol in the house because when it's in the house, I get carried away and I drink too much. And if it's not in the house, you know, I'll be okay. 
So, yeah. and there's another rule right there. We try to put into place removing alcohol from the house, which I think is a great one, especially yeah. in early sobriety. And Janine, would you mind educating me a little bit on postpartum depression? I've heard it for decades and I have my own mental conceptual idea of what it is, but I know we've got a lot of future mommies listening right now as, as well as several men on the podcast who are listening and tell me a little bit about postpartum depression, what it is, how you've dealt with it and how drinking played a role in that. Well, I, I feel like every experience with postpartum depression is probably a little bit different, but for me, you know, it doesn't help that your hormones are just completely insane and out of whack. But on top of that, you know, just the stress of bringing a new life into this world and being responsible for it and having no clue what you're doing. <laughs> you know, you also have all these other things going on. Like you just, you know, as a new mom, you just feel like you lose so much of your identity. Your whole life revolves around this other human being, which can be great. But it's also like, you know, there were so many days I would look in the mirror and I would not even recognize the person looking back at me, you know, physically and mentally, you know, I was typically a pretty happy person, but I was just turning, morphing into this person. I didn't, I didn't even know. My husband had started a new job that was very stressful and God bless his heart. He would come home and I would just lose my crap, you know, like I would just be crying uncontrollably or I'd be furious about something. My emotions were just all over the place. And the thing that that really, really sucks about postpartum depression is that, you know, this is supposed to be one of the happiest times of your life. I mean, you have this miracle and you feel bad for feeling bad because, you know, you feel like you should just be elated and happy all the time and everything should be you know, rainbows and butterflies, but instead you just feel like a mess. And so it, it, you feel even more guilty and it's hard to talk about whenever you feel that way. So I finally kind of just had a breaking point where, of course, I didn't think that it had anything to do with alcohol at first. I thought, you know, it's just postpartum depression. So I did go to my doctor and I got on some antidepressants, but I didn't quit drinking. And, you know, whenever I, I tried, I mixed the antidepressants with the alcohol I and the depression and everything else. I mean, it's just like everything exploded. Janine, thank you so much for that description about what postpartum depression is. There's a, three things happening in, in what I'm hearing from you. We've heard of post-acute withdrawal symptoms. This is pause when it comes to drinking. It sounds like we've got some PABS, post-acute baby symptoms where the body is coming back online emotionally, hormonally. All the systems are starting to collaborate again pre, like they did before having the baby. And then there's another thing that's coming in the ego, which is the role, the protective personality. You're saying, you know, who you are has been challenged by something external to baby. There's something else that's more important than you. That's bigger than you. And then also expectations. That's a huge one. Also, we've heard that expectations are resentments waiting to happen. I've heard that line before. I love that. And like you said, our culture tells us that once we have a child, everything will change. It's part of the American dream or part of the just the dream of being a human being. And when that happens, it's not quite the same as the expectations that maybe you had. That can be difficult. So thank you for putting it out there. I know a lot of listeners right now are saying, whoa, that's a lot to go through. Of course, your drinking is going to ramp up during that. And how did you deal with that after that? Well, I continued to drink. And then, you know, that last attempt to control my drinking where I said no more alcohol in the house that lasted for, I think, I don't even know if it was a week. I think it might've been five or six days. And I just broke and went and bought some wine and literally inhaled it <laughs> one night. And, you know, that night I did some weird things like, you know, Real quick, Jeanine, can you tell us when this moment was? It was the, the beginning of November. I want to say it was like the first weekend of November. Okay, so this is 2019, last November, yes. close to your last drink. Yes. 
Okay. Um, so you're, you're going with postpartum depression and you went to your doctor and got on antidepressants and you mentioned drinking wasn't the problem. And I know those on the side of the pill labels, it says, do not drink on these meds, probably <laughs> worn by a doctor and couldn't have been the alcohol, but you're about to reach a tipping point, a breaking point, which these meltdowns, which I call melt-ins are the best thing that can happen to us. So pick it up from there. Yeah. So that day I just went and bought two bottles of wine and I came home and, and waited till the baby was in bed and just inhaled them, <clears throat> drank them incredibly fast. And, you know, I got blackout drunk and I did some weird things. Um, it's really nothing out of the ordinary for something, you know, like I sent some weird text messages and and We've heard way worse like, on this podcast, Janine. Yeah, right. <laughs> Weird like, things. Hmm. I've, yeah, it's yeah. hard to surprise me these days. <laughs> right. I mean, it was nothing crazy, you know, but, and, and I called this my rock bottom, but it wasn't really a rock bottom. It was just, I woke up the next morning having the anxiety and, you know, the friend that I text was like, I don't think you meant to send this to me. I hope everything's okay. And, you know, I just lost it. Like I cried the entire day and I was like, you know, Janine, like you cannot deny this anymore. You have a problem. You cannot control it. With and that text message real quick, what did you say back? Did you open up or, or did you say, no, no, I'm okay. I'm okay. I'm okay. I'm okay. Oh yeah. I, I just said, oh yeah, I, I did. I meant to send that to another friend. Oh, okay. Her name her name begins with the same letter. <laughs> sure. Sure. Okay. So. And so you're sitting there. You said, Janine, this has to change. We clearly have an issue. It's, it's no doubt we have a problem with this. A change needs to happen. In fact, earlier you said something that reminded me of one of my quotes that I had. I typed this up, printed it out, put it on my corkboard right next to my computer that simplified this whole process. I said, Paul, if you want this, and this represented the life that I wanted with wholesome joy, internal peace and happiness, if I want this, then I can't have that. And that's alcohol. So if I want happiness, I can't have alcohol. That's a line. And the next line said, that's okay, Paul. If you want alcohol, that's okay as well, but you can't have this, the happy life. So I would look at it without judgment and it was simplified. It was, hey, Paul, you can have, you can have a happy life and you can't have alcohol or you can have alcohol and you can't have a happy life. And it sounds like you reached that same conclusion. We could look at it with clarity. What happened next? Well, I happened to, you know, just be in a total wreck that day and my dad just happened to call at the, <laughs> at the right time and he's a recovering alcoholic. And, you know, I was like fighting back tears and his first words were, you know, I, I, I just felt like I needed to call you this morning and hear your voice and I just lost it. How often do you and your dad talk? Oh, a lot. He's retired now. So I stay at home. He's retired. We talk like almost every day. Oh, okay. So your dad, who's a recovering alcoholic, just decided to call that day, had a feeling, gut intuition. Hey, I just needed to hear your voice today at the time. You probably needed to talk with your dad most, who's also walked this journey. That's incredible. What happened after that? Well, I opened up to him and that was my first time ever telling my dad that I thought I had issues with drinking because I knew once I opened that door, there was no turning back. So I told him and, you know, he said, I'm so sorry you're going through this. But he said, you know, he gave me some really good advice. He never did a recovery program or anything. And he said, you know, to this day, I kind of regret it. So he encouraged me to try something like AA. And he said, but in the meantime, he was like, you know, Google tips on how to quit drinking. And so I did. But the very next day I went to my first meetings. What do you think the date of this was? Was this November 10th or 11th? No, it was actually, um, well, I said the very next day I went to a meeting. It was actually the next week. But I mean, I had made up my mind then that I wanted to quit drinking. But <laughs> as silly as it may sound, we had plans that weekend for a friend's birthday party. And I, I kind of didn't want to set myself up for failure because I knew I was going to drink. But I gave myself a date. I said, you know, on November 11th, I'm, I'm going to be done. And so that's actually when I went to my first meeting. But. Okay. But the conversation with your dad happened before November 11th. Yes, it did. Okay. So the point I'm going to try to make here is this is the power of opening up, letting the authentic self speak, giving that inner child a voice. And we, on this podcast, we call it burning the mother in ships where <laughs> you have a conversation with your dad 
somebody who's probably near and dear to you, extremely close to you in your life, and you burn the ships with your father who's also been down this pathway. And it doesn't even matter if they give you the correct sequence of steps, the formula, this is how I did it. You mentioned he didn't really have a specific program, which is fine. Uh, many people quit drinking without the help of 12-step or any of those official programs, shall we say. But you, you, you opened up, you burned a ship, a huge one with your father, and then the date when you became alcohol-free followed a week later, five days later. That's fairly profound, and I'm finding that that mirrors a lot of people's journey on this. When they open up to the people closest to them in life, then their sobriety date is shortly after that. And that's how it was with me in 2014. No coincidence there. So get us up to speed. What was it like for that first AA meeting? And what happened after that? Oh, my goodness. The first meeting, I was completely mortified. Um, I thought my heart was going to jump out of my chest. <laughs> and um, I honestly, my expectations were so... Because, you know, when we hear the word alcoholic even though I watched my dad go through it and I knew he, he never really hit a rock bottom, but I also had, you know, my mind telling me he wasn't really an alcoholic because I feel like our culture views an alcoholic as, you know, someone sleeping under the bridge. So I, you know, walked into it expecting to see a bunch of people that had to go there because the judge made them. And whenever I get there and after the meeting, you know, people are coming up to me and they're so friendly and, then I come to find out there were like two or three other women there who were also teachers. So, you know, it, it was comforting in that sense, but still for the, I would say the first week I was just so beside myself and thought my life was over. And, you know, I was terrified that I would lose all my friends. And I was, I, I was even scared that cause my husband was a pretty big drinker, but he's quit drinking since, um, I began my journey, but I was even terrified that, you know, we aren't going to have anything in common. What are we going to talk about? You know, just, I thought my world was going to be over. Real quick, I wish I had a witty poem to describe the first AA meeting with uh, how the Grinch stole Christmas, right? Because I recall, it's like, wait, there are people laughing in these meetings. Wait, there are people making plans. Wait, there are other people who are professional and functioning in their job. Other teachers like me. And it, it's cool once, once you see that. Um, but you also mentioned you felt like your life was over. And I want to uh, validate part of that is you are correct. There is part of your life that is over that we have to grieve. And that's the old self. That's the part that drinks. And I think it's important for us to actually grieve that part. And there's many deaths as we go through this journey. There's many parts of us that need to die. Just like a snake shedding our its skin, part of us has to shed off at many layers throughout this journey. And I've had some big grieving moments. And that's where the protective personality tries to hold on to this narrative, this story of the old self, the familiar chemical reactions, the emotions in the body. Body, even if they're uncomfortable, it's, it's the known. And you're stepping into the biggest unknown of your life. And of course, it's totally normal, listeners out there, it's totally normal to feel like life is over. Because psychologically, that's actually what's happening. There's a part of you that's dying. There's a part of your life that is over. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that the unconscious will, will make a validating effort and make you drink again. That can happen too. But once you hit that tipping point, that part of your life is gone. And it's important to recognize that. Get out a pen, paper, journal about it. Um, have a candlelight ceremony. Have your own little mini funeral. But you need to grieve that old self. I like how you said that. And what happens next? Well, I think after the first couple of weeks, you know, after going, attending several meetings and um, meeting new people and um, forming some new relationships, and not only that, but just, oh my God, like not having any more hangovers <laughs> and being able to, you know, watch my daughter play and get on the ground and play with her instead of laying on the couch, being hungover and feeling like crap. You know, it's kind of like, I realized I'm going to be okay. And this is actually going to, you know, it's going to be worth it. Janine, was there a challenging moment in there, a craving where you almost drank and how'd you get past it? Oh, there, there was, there were several in the beginning. Um, you know, it, it wasn't all great the whole time, but, um, there, there were a few times, I mean, having a, having a baby, especially, I guess your first one, I don't know, but having a baby just throws so many different things into the mix. And so, you know, my husband and I are still learning how to navigate parenthood 
And so, you know, just like any other couple, we've had our bouts. And, you know, I decided to stop drinking right before the holidays. <laughs> so there were a few times I'd be around people drinking and I was like, man, I really kind of wish I could just drink one, but I knew that wasn't possible. So there were times that, you know, especially whenever I was stressed, I mean, that's a trigger for me for sure that I wanted to drink, but you know, I, I called a friend, called my sponsor and they kind of talked me out of it. And also in the lineup of burning of the ships and equal magnitude is your husband. And you mentioned he quit drinking at the same time, which is miraculous. Fantastic. How has your relationship changed with your husband? Just talk to us about that dynamic. Oh my goodness. It's been amazing. And I'm, I am very fortunate to have a spouse that has supported me 110% because I didn't really ask him to stop drinking. I did in the beginning just because it's kind of hard to <laughs> be around someone drinking around you. But I told him, I was like, you know, this doesn't have to be forever, just, um, just for a little while, but he hasn't drank since. And it's, our relationship has gotten so much better. You know, I think that not having the hangovers and, you know, deciding who's going to take care of the baby. And, you know, I feel like we can talk and on a different level. And I, I don't know, I just feel like our relationship has gotten a lot deeper over the past couple of months. Janine, let's talk about mommy wine culture and how it's a real thing. What is your idea of that and what would you like to see changed? Well, I, as I mentioned before, you know, I had this idea that six years ago, whenever I was thinking about having a family and being a wife and a mom that, you know, I shouldn't be drinking that much. But the more I became friends with people that had children the more I began to realize that just because you're a mom doesn't mean that you have to stop drinking, which kind of made it a little, I mean, not to place blame on society, but it did make it a little bit harder for me to want to quit. I obviously, I just have a nine month old. I don't have a child that's older, but I did teach kindergarten for nine years. And so, you know, I'd hear stories about, you know, parents saying, Oh, I had to, I had to have some wine at soccer practice or, you know, bottles of wine that says mommy's reward <laughs> and, you know, mommy's day out or whatever. Um, it's just, it's a real thing. And whenever I became a mom and I wanted to, I got to a point where I was really wanting to quit drinking. It was kind of hard because I knew that a lot of my friends that had kids drank and, and I mean, you know, drank a fair amount. They weren't like your casual drinkers. So I kind of felt like not only am I going to lose this crutch that I have, but I feel like I'm going to lose all these friendships that I have, which is hard whenever you already feel like you're losing your identity. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, it's just like on Facebook, I'll see ads for purses with wine pouches in them or bangles that have wine in them and you know or shirts that you know have some kind of wine happy hour message on them and I mean I know it's all in good fun but you know it just kind of makes it feel normal to drink excessively. Sure and Janine I don't think we are going to solve or correct the mommy wine culture and it is a real thing but I know there's a lot of moms out there listening or a lot of people or women out there who would like to have a child and be a mom in the future. And they're all nodding their heads saying, yeah, it's total bullshit and this needs to change. But I do feel bringing awareness, bringing presence to the issue still adds comfort because if we go through this alone. There's a time you probably thought you're the only one going through mommy wine culture dealing with alcohol and, and but we're not. So there is comfort in knowing that we're not alone. And you're right. There are two huge identities and roles that are trying to go away, trying to part from you, which is um, number one, the self, right? You bring in another child in your life and that dramatically that dramatically changes your idea of yourself, but then the alcohol, there's two big roles, identities that are shifting. So you kind of got a double whammy on that. And I hope you can sit with that and, and allow yourself to, to feel that because that's a big one and not sweep it under the rug, which is, which is, I don't think you're doing cause we've been on this podcast talking about talking about it. And you mentioned a book called drink by Ann Johnston. Tell us a little bit about that. Yes. I'm actually only halfway through with it, but 
it's just fascinating. I have watched um, one of her TED Talks and, you know, it just kind of blew my mind that you don't even see this going on right in front of your face. But I know in her TED Talks specifically, one thing, I haven't really gotten to it in the book, but one thing she talks about is how, you know, the the alcohol marketing now is focused so much more on women because at one point in time, perhaps maybe like 10 or 20 years ago, females weren't drinking as much. And the companies began to realize this and they realized that they could market towards this whole demographic. And so that's whenever wine coolers became a thing. And that's whenever, you know, now if you go into a liquor store, you see um, skinny girl margaritas. You see, like I said, there's like a wine called mommy's reward there's just so much marketed towards women and you know even she speaks a little bit about on college campuses how you know females are and I mean I I experienced this myself but um, I remember being in college and you know playing beer pong and you know a lot of girls don't like the taste of beer they just don't so instead of playing beer pong with beer, they're playing it with vodka, which is, you know, pretty dangerous. And as a female, you know, our bodies just metabolize alcohol very differently. So it's it's just very dangerous. And I really enjoy her um, research and perspective on, you know, how, like I said, these things are going on right in front of us and we don't even we don't even see it. Janine, it's almost the same thing when we bring presence and awareness to the mind. For example, we have a negative thought pattern. We recognize it with awareness and bring ourselves back into this moment. We separate ourselves from it. We don't exactly fix the problem or correct it. In fact, we don't have to because awareness is the most important tool, the most important activity to bring to that, uh, that direction. So I feel like the same thing we're doing here with mommy and wine culture is simply bringing that awareness to this. We can step back and say, okay, look, marketers, they have a job to do. That's up to them. My reaction, I don't have to buy that yoga mom wine shirt. I don't have to go down that path. And there's simply comfort in numbers recognizing there are thousands, thousands. In fact, we're almost at 5 million downloads on this podcast. And there, there are hundreds of thousands of women out there who feel the same as you. And I know you're nodding your head in your car right now or listening, you're walking, you're running at your job, wherever you are, you're nodding your head saying, yeah, that's kind of bullshit. But I encourage you to shift your energy and focus to that's bullshit to those marketers. And I, I don't like the Instagram channels that go after alcohol um, that say like, oh, it's so effed up that the marketers do this, 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 and this, because it's not a fight against marketers. It can't be. And my book is titled Alcohol is Shit. I understand that. In fact, I cover that in the book. It can't be a fight against this. It has to be, you need to focus your energy uh, on the love within the opportunity that you have, because the instant we go down that negative pathway, then we're adding more energy in a dynamic fashion that we don't want to go down that route. So um, before we get to the rapid fire round, Janine, I want to ask you, how has your depression and anxiety changed post quitting drinking? Oh, it's, I honestly feel like I live a different life. I feel like I'm starting to come out of this fog and, you know, like I said, just being able to be present in the moment with my daughter and, you know, not feeling like crap and, being able to communicate with my husband and life is just so much more enjoyable. And, you know, I, I'm beginning to realize that my life is not over. <laughs> you know, I may or may not. I mean, to be honest, I really I haven't told all of my friends that I quit drinking, but I, you know, I came to the conclusion that even if I do lose some friends, I've made some amazing friends through AA. So it's all going to be okay. But yeah, I just, I'm starting to, you know, I've got some goals I want to start working on and I just, I feel a million times better. And I'm an advocate of burning every ship in the harbor, but I also understand this has to be done on your own time. In fact, you can completely shock your system if going too fast. So listen to the body. You'll know when the time is right to do so. And it might not have to be with everybody, right? Is this journey is completely different for everybody. We have hit the rapid fire round. Janine, answer these questions within 30 seconds. Are you ready? I'm ready. 
Hey, and I just want to say, I should have said this earlier. You're doing such a good job. How do you feel? <laughs> Thanks. All right, good. What is a light bulb moment you've had on this journey? I would say whenever I couldn't, I made that last attempt to control my drinking by not having alcohol in the house. And that lasted five days. <laughs> and I knew that my time with drinking was over. What is a memorable moment a life without alcohol has given you? Spending my daughter's first Christmas completely sober. What's your favorite alcohol-free drink, Janine? I'm a big fan of water. <laughs> Best answer to hear on this podcast. Seriously, all you need is water. Okay, what are some of your favorite resources? I enjoy this podcast. I don't get to attend AA meetings as much as I would like because of the baby and my husband's work schedule. So podcasts are huge for me. I also enjoy um, drinking, or drinking, <laughs> reading, reading um, different books. Drink is what I'm reading right now. And I have this, I think it's called the Sober Diaries, which I'm going to be reading next. Real quick, when you said, I also enjoy drinking, right? So there, <laughs> there is a second set of ears who hears every single episode. Her name is Ty. She's an angel sent from above. She's been editing the podcast for, I think, 200 episodes. There are times when she'll email, email me and be like, hey, Paul, in episode 233, you'll say, you say, your life with alcohol is so much better. I'm like, oh, thank you, Ty. <laughs> Really appreciate that. You did me a big solid and I'll go back and edit it. So, Hey, we're all human beings. We put our pants on one leg at a time. So <laughs> it's all good. <laughs> and what's on your bucket list in an alcohol free life? I've actually been thinking about taking up blogging. So that's, that's something I want to start working on that I'm getting pretty excited about. Cool. Yeah. Well, if you do something in this space about mommy and wine culture, let me know and I'll share it. <laughs> Absolutely. And what parting piece of guidance can you give to listeners? I would say, you know, if you know in your heart that you can't control your drinking anymore, you know, don't listen to the lies that your mind is telling you. Like I did for so long, reach out to someone that, you know, cares about you. And like you've said so many times on this podcast, you know, recovery begins at the end of your comfort zone. And that's so true. I mean, it's hard to speak your truth, but it's so important. And I don't know of anyone in recovery that says, I wish I would have waited to get help or tell someone. If anything, I wish I would have done this six years ago when I first began to realize that I had, I had a problem. And before you depart, give your own customized, you might need to ditch the booze if line. You might need to ditch the booze if you get blackout drunk while watching Dateline. <laughs> Love it. Thank you so much for joining us, Janine. It was an absolute pleasure chatting with you this morning. Thank you. A bit about why love is so powerful. I once heard that to love someone is to fully know their song, to memorize their song, all the notes, the dynamics, the crescendos, the peaks, the valleys, and then sing it to them when they have forgotten it. Love is recognizing oneness in a world of duality, in a world of form and formlessness at the same time, in a world where sound and silence exists, space and no space, black and white, hot and cold. True love is recognizing your divine perfection in someone else and theirs in you. This can be so euphoric because your sense of self disappears. It's seeing one when there appears to be many in this world. When we no longer see ourselves as separate from someone, we take a step closer to our true nature and chemicals in the brain and body are released, such as norepinephrine and dopamine. And once this love sticks around, we then see an increase in oxytocin, this is the love molecule, serotonin, and more endorphins. You might be saying to yourself, but I'm not falling in love or I'm not in love with somebody. I don't want to date anybody right now. Well, the same process happens when you fall in love with yourself which is inevitably where this journey leads us if we stick with it long enough. Trust me. And our pets do a fantastic job of teaching us this lesson. The next time you think about how much you love your pet, switch it. Think about how much your pet loves you. Recovery Elevator, go big, because eventually we'll all go home. I love you guys.